Actually, we're going to be in chapter 7 for the next two weeks, so if you'd like to read ahead, we'll try to get through verses 1 to 8, then we'll be 9 to 17. This week will be the 144,000, next week will be the great multitude. So if you'd like to read ahead. Let me read this passage for you. Again, Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, and again, these things would be what was found in in Revelation chapter 6, and that is the breaking of the seals, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth seal. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, I, I want you to hear that, okay? Because people over the years have debated, I wonder who these people are. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And then from each tribe were sealed 12,000. And then you can just go down verses 5 to 8, and it contains those names. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Hmm, I wonder who these people are. Ooh, thank you. You know, when we go to, uh, I don't know, most of you have probably gone to a professional baseball game or college baseball game or a professional football game or a college football game or any of those type of... Usually when you go to a sporting event, one of the things that you, are, that you can buy or sometimes are free is a program. And it, that's helpful, especially if you don't follow the team. You know, you get the program... It has a list of the players, their numbers, many times more you know, stats on them. If it's baseball, what's their you know, hitting average, things like that. But the idea is you get a program so you can watch the game with a greater understanding. Oh, that's who the quarterback is, and that's the running back, and you know, so forth. You get the program because it helps you to enjoy and understand the game. Because it gives you all the players and even some of their, you know, um, what they are good at. <laughs> well, what we, we, we find in Revelation is a, a similar thing. Uh, God periodically gives us another player. The first one, immediately as we went into Revelation, was Lord Jesus Christ himself. And remember that complete description. We spent three weeks on his characteristics, his description in Revelation 1. Then we moved in chapters 2 and 3, and we saw the church, the present church, the seven churches of the Revelation. Well, there are players. In other words, another element. This is what the church on earth is doing. Well, then they're raptured. And then chapters 4 and 5, we go back and we see God the Father on the throne. Another player. And I mean that in a very respectful way. I'm saying he's one who is going to uh, have the scroll handed to the son who we just were introduced to in chapter 1. Chapter 5 is the son. See, we keep getting different uh, players, different characters. And we now are going to be introduced in chapter 7 to two more. 
One is the 144,000, which is verses 1 to 8. And then in verses 9 to 17 is a great multitude. These are two more groups of people. And I say that like in, in the context of a program because we want to, as it were, go to the program and say, okay, this is why they're here. This is why, they, this is why uh, uh, Christ, through the Apostle John, wrote to us and said, okay, let me tell you about the 144,000 in verses 9 to 17. Let me tell you about the great multitude. Because again, it gives impact, it gives understanding to the entire book of Revelation. The other thing I want to, want to tell you is that this is like, as it were, an intermission. I remember watching uh, Gone with the Wind. And uh, halfway through, I don't know how long that movie was, but I remember all of a sudden it says intermission. I don't know if I had an old copy, but that intermission, you know. It gives you an opportunity to get up and stretch. I know at baseball games a lot of times, what is it, the seventh inning, they have an intermission, they get up, stretch, and they sing the song. Is that, a, is that correct? You know, it gives you time to kind of recalculate, uh, go to the bathroom, get refocused, get encouraged. Okay, <clears throat> get encouraged if your baseball, if your team's not doing so well, whatever. Uh, here, this is an intermission. And chapter 7 is an intermission. That's why I called it an interlude of encouragement. It's an intermission. It's a, so, it's a short recess so we, will, we, as the church, those who are reading the book of Revelation, will be able to get encouraged, refocus. We need to catch our breath and get perspective. By the way, this is a great passage to be on uh, Thanksgiving week. This is a great passage. Because let's face it, let's go back to Revelation chapter 6. What have we just been talking about? You know, the seals were open, chapter 6, verse 1, and I saw the Lamb open one of the seals in a white horse, and we found out that that's false peace. There was a false peace on this earth. By the way, when the false peace was so prevalent, there was also false messiahs. There was a lot of deception, okay? So when you look at false peace, don't see it as a positive. It's a, it's a judgment. But then, remember, the second seal, verse 3, it, and that's war. And a fiery uh, red horse went out and, to take peace from the earth. And then the next one, verse 5, is a black horse, and that's famine. And a quart of wheat for a denarius. You work all day and all you have enough food for is one person. And then in verse 7, a pale horse, and that's death and Hades. Death followed and Hades, uh, excuse me, death came and Hades followed with him. And the power was given to them over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword with hunger, with death, and with beasts of the earth. I mean, just death and destruction and carnage. And as God, who is so gracious and so merciful, does, He gives us glimpses of hope. And in verse 9, we do see another judgment, but we see those who are martyred, and they say, How long, O Lord, how holy and true, until you judge? That's verse 10. How long before you avenge our blood? And basically, you know, be patient. In other words, everything is under control. See, that's a little bit of a hope right there, even though it's a judgment. You know, everything is under control. I just love the, the idea that every sin will be judged and, and every righteous deed would, will be rewarded. It may take a long time. You may not see it in your lifetime, but it's coming. God is faithful. Isn't it a great hope to you? Everything is under control. It's on God's timetable. He's not in crises. We might be in crises. He's not. 
But look at, the, look at the sixth seal, because the sixth seal comes from the fifth seal. The fifth seal is, they're praying for vengeance. The sixth seal is broken. I looked at verse 12, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, uh, there was a great earthquake. Not just an earthquake, a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and stars of heaven fell. And, and, and what you see with these seals and these judgments, everyone is is more intense. It's just like, as we said, like labor pains. You have false labor pains and then all of a sudden, let's say your water breaks and now you are going to have this baby. <laughs> but when you start, it's going to get increasingly intense and as you go through the seven seals and six of them have already been accomplished, it's going to get more intense. They're going to become more severe greater tragedy, greater destruction. And if you look at the last verse, well, look, look at the, what men do in verse 16 in the mountains, and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. By the way, these are the kings of the earth, verse 15, the great men, the rich men. Uh, in fact, he even says, every free man and every slave hid themselves in the caves, verse 15, in the rocks. Of them. I mean, it, Everyone is involved. No one's exempt. God's wrath and fury against all of mankind. Verse 16, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's God the Father, God the Son. For the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now this is the great day of the wrath. Can you show me that one... Uh, one chart on, if you happen to have it there. The tribulation, the three and a half years. We looked at this last week. Oh, why is it? Okay. Yeah. Remember the 69 weeks and then Messiah is cut off in the church age and that church age has gone from Pentecost now to it's still, we're still in the church age. Okay. But there's coming a day, the final one week, the 70 weeks of Daniel, the final week, the, and again, week is seven, so the final seven years. But in the, in the midway point is where the, 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 um, the covenant that the, the Antichrist made with the people of Israel, he breaks it, sets up the altar in the uh, temple at the three and a half year mark, and uh, it demands worship to himself. But the reason I say that is when it says the great, the great day, that, that last thing, the great day of his wrath, that's... That's identifying that, I believe, as the three and a half year mark. In other words, the last three and a half years is the great tribulation. This is, this is the time period of the, of the woman's labor, okay? The, the labor on the earth, the, the destruction on the earth, and the six seals have come up to about right here, thereabouts. And the great day has come, the final fury of God. Let me say it too. The seventh seal is open, and the seventh seal contains the judgment seals, and the last judge, or excuse me, the trumpets, the last trumpet judgments. I said that wrong. The last seal is the seventh seal, and the seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments, and the last trumpet judgment, the seventh one, contains the 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 bold judgments. So it's a so there's only seven seals, but the seventh contains the trumpet and bowl judgments, okay? And they get intense, and the bowl judgments, I believe, could only last for the, a few days. 
Because when you have complete destruction, I mean, you, you're not the person. No living person could survive. So it just gets intense, intense, intense to the very, very end. And the last few days, week, two weeks, three weeks, four, whatever, is the bowls are being poured out. Now, the great day of his wrath has come, and who? This is the question. Who is able to stand? Do you see the question? Who is able to stand? And if, and if we didn't have chapter 7, just go over to chapter 8. <laughs> chapter 8, verse 1 says, And when he opened the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about an hour, and then the seven trumpets, and, an, and the angels are blowing them, and the prayers of the saints, verse 3, and the prayers of the saints, verse 4, ascending before the... And look at, but go down to verse, uh, the last part of verse 5, and, and there was noises and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake. Uh, verse 7, a third of the trees were burned up. Verse 8, a third of the sea became blood. I mean, that would be a real bummer of a Thanksgiving message. <laughs> no, no. You know what God's... Wait, how much can we take? I mean, we need some hope. Don't you need hope? We need hope. We need encouragement. We, we, you know... Who's in control here? Well, obviously, we know we just read it. God's in control on the throne and the Lamb. They're in, but Lord, we need, we need hope. So he puts this parenthesis, this chapter 7. He said, well, let, let, me, let me tell you. Who's able to stand? Let me tell you some people who are able to stand. Okay, Chapter 7 is answering that question. Who is able to stand? So the seventh chapter... Is, is showing us God is in control. He is sovereign. Everything's under control. There is hope. There is encouragement. Why? Because God is faithful towards His own. This is the other thing we find in chapter 7. There will be an effective witness on this earth during the entire time of the great tribulation. I mean, it was up to that point. We saw, I mean, the martyrs, we knew that they came out of that first Three and a half years, the martyrs of this, the fifth seal. But, but what, what, what happens when it really gets bad? No, no. The 144,000 will literally, get, let me give you the big picture, will literally be sealed at the halfway point, will, will witness throughout the entire three and a half, last three and a half years of the tribulation. They will still be living, according to Revelation 14, when Christ comes back sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, and they will enter the millennial kingdom alive. Who is able to stand? God will protect his own, the 144,000. They will be able to stand. And that's why we are going to be studying about the 144,000. So this is an intermission. <laughs> this is an intermission so we can catch our breath. And we can get perspective. And I mean perspective. I mean perspective on who God is. God, God has everything under control. If only... John Prince would always remember that God has everything under control. Everything's under control. So let's look at this parenthesis. Well, first of all, we find out that the winds are restrained. Well, literally, because the winds in chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, represent the wrath of God, it's really the wrath being restrained. And again, we see this. It says the four angels, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1, standing on the four corners of the earth. By the way, 
some who are cynical to the fact that the Word of God is the Word of God would say, yeah, see, this, this is just a naive, pre-scientific, you know, looking at the earth is flat, you know, four winds. Like, don't they even, doesn't, even the, doesn't the Bible even know that the earth is round? I like what uh, Henry Morris, he wrote this in his commentary. He says, in terms of modern uh, technology, it is essentially equivalent to what a mariner or geologist would call the four quadrants of the compass or the four directions. This is evident also from the mention of the four winds, which is com- in common usage would, of course, be the north, south, east, and west. He goes on and says this, parenthetically, accurate modern, okay, what is this word, geodetic? Geodetic, yeah, geodetic, yeah, thank you, Henry. Geodetic measurements in recent years have proved that the earth actually does have four corners. These are protuberances standing out from the basic geode. Boy, aren't you glad you have really smart people in this world? Okay, anyways, you got the four corners. That is the basic spherical shape of the earth. The earth is not really a perfect sphere, but it's slightly flattened at the poles. Its equatorial bulge is presumably caused by the earth's axial rotation and its four corners protrude from that. Okay, enough of that. But the point is, um, yeah, the four corners. By the way, the wind, again... Well, let's just read the second part of this. Verse 2, And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels. The four angels who, was, who were holding the you know, north, west, east, and south, the, the winds. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So, angel, the fifth angel said to the four that were holding back the judgments, no more judgments on the earth until these 144,000 are sealed. Do you get the picture? Now, I want to say this. I believe when it comes to the 144,000, they had been ministering in the tribulation for the first three and a half years. I think what they got, right, they got saved. But let's just take it back this. The rapture happens. Now, all of a sudden, these 144,000 male Jews by the Spirit of God illuminating them, are like, you know the Jewish evangelist that was telling me about this like three years ago? He's right. See, once the Christian church is gone, I'm assuming that's going to not only be cataclysmic on the earth, but it's going to really start making people think. I'm assuming the 144,000 get saved right at the very beginning of the tribulation. Oh, we thought we were the center of God's plan. No, God has a bigger plan. They get saved. They witness. But it's, I believe at the, at the three and a half year mark that they are sealed. Don't look at the sealing, sealing of, the, of, the, of the Jews as their salvation. This, actually, the seal is really the fact of protection saying you're not going to harm them. In other words, they're going to go through the, or the, the three and a half year period, the Great Tribulation, and you're not going to kill them. Which means this. God always has a witness. God always has a witness. And they're going to be his witness. Not only them, but then you have the two witnesses, right? What is it, chapter 11? And then you have the everlasting gospel being preached by the angel. That's in chapter, I think, 14. So, I mean, God always has a witness. So, what is it? 
hold back. And if you look at what those, the winds and the judgments, if you go to chapter 8, which we just were in, see, as soon as these were sealed, and we get through chapter 7, chapter 8 is let go, and the judgments start again. The, the seventh seal is broke, and the trumpet judgments begin. So we're, the, the, the wrath of God is being held back for a moment of time so that the, uh, the 144,000 would be sealed. Well, let's look at the identity I've been telling you. Now again, the selection of the 144,000. Are they Israelites or are they the church? If you, if you had a thousand people from around this world that call themselves Christians, that call themselves teachers of the Word of God, and you ask them, are they Jewish or the church? The majority, I want you to understand this, the majority would say they are the church. If you believe these are the Jews, you are in the minority, not the majority. Okay. Now again, I believe that they are Israel. I mean, I think if you just read it, it it's pretty obvious. right? Now, but just let me tell you a few things about Israel. Why is this important to identify them? One of the reasons is this. The key to prophecy is Israel. To say it this way, if you get Israel wrong, you will get prophecy wrong every time. That's just how it is. If you get Israel wrong, if you don't understand God's purpose for Israel, that's why we went through the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, Davidic covenant, I mean, all the different covenants a while back, because my, the whole point was this. If you get Israel wrong, you will get prophecy wrong because you won't see them where God is using them. Not only that, but God said, I'm going to use you. Israel was supposed to be the means for the message of the gospel to get to the world. They, they thought it was the end. See, if you asked the Jew, they would have said, no, it's all about us. Actually, they were a means to an end. They were supposed to be the ones that were presenting the gospel. They were God's messengers. And what Israel did not do in the first 69 weeks of Daniel, they will do in the last, the last week. The last seven years, it will be the Jew. It will be primarily the Jew that's going to be the evangelist, the ones getting the truth out. Now you say... Let, let's just, let me just turn to one. Isaiah, I think it's 49 verse, yeah, 49.6. Isaiah 49.6. Because I want you to see, they were supposed to be the means to the end. They, it became the end. They thought they were the group. No, no, God, God wanted to save people from every tribe and nation and tongue. That's what we find actually with the second group, chapter 7, which we're in, starting in verse 9 the innumerable multitude. But if you go to Isaiah chapter 49, now again, we're going to go right back to Revelation. Verse 6, it says, Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, they were supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. They had truth, they rejected truth, they weren't the light. But in the end, in the last seven years, they're going to be the light. Okay? I mean, other people are going to be sharing the gospel, but this is the 144,000 Jews. Let me give you some reasons why I believe that Israel here is, is the Jew. You know, the tribes of Israel is Jewish and not the church. Let me give you three, and I put them in your notes. Uh, the first one comes from verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Again, the word Israel is never used of the church in the New Testament. Whenever you see Israel, it means, 
Okay, let me say this together. Whenever you hear the word, whenever you read the word Israel, it means Israel. Now, some will say, no, no, there's a passage in Romans 11 and Galatians 6. It is by, by far not at all uh, absolute. It could very easily, the Israel God could just mean Christians who are, or Jews, or Jews who are Christians in, in uh, Galatians chapter 6. So I'll just make that statement. We could expound on it maybe in, in future lessons. But the, the point is the word Israel is never used of the church in the New Testament. Of the 65 occurrences, Israel means Israel. Or to say it this way, if the normal sense makes sense, then pursue no other sense. If the normal sense makes sense, pursue no other sense. J.E. Seiss had a pretty interesting, he said this, quote, As I read the Bible, when God says children of Israel, I do not understand him to mean any, any but people of Jewish blood, be that Christian or not. It might be a Christian Jew. And when he speaks of the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob and gives the name of the tribes, it is impossible for me to believe that he means Gentile in any sense or degree, whether they be believers or not. I know of no instance in which descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel includes the Gentiles. Now again, this is an error if you go down there. And then he closes with this. This error of thinking that the the, the Jews are the church, in other words, that's called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. He says this, so beclouds the scriptures that's, and so unsettles the faith of men as this constant attempt to read the church for Israel and Christian peoples for Jewish tribes. It just, it just clouds everything. No, when you see the word Jew, when you see the word Israel, just think of the Israelites. That's not the church. That's the Israelites. Because if you don't, you're going to get your, your eschatology, your uh, understanding of prophecy is going to be very clouded. The Jew is the Jew, the Israelite is the Israelite. Okay. Number two, if you're a pre trib in your thinking, you know that by this point in the book, the church has already been taken out. I believe it's, it's right after chapter three. That's a second reason to not read Israel as the church. And then the third reason is it is interesting that Jews and Gentiles are clearly distinguished from, not, from one another in this passage. Because this says the children of Israel, verse 4, but now just drop down to verse 9. And a great multitude which no one can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. See, there's a distinction, there's a contrast. So, could I get that other uh, chart? No chart? Honey. Okay, so let me just say it this way. Revelation verses 1 to 8. I'm just going to go 1 to 8, 9 to 17. 1 to 8 is Jews. Revelation 7, 9 to 17 are primarily Gentiles, innumerable, every t- uh, tribe and tongue. The, hunter, uh, the first group is 144,000. That's specific. The second group is innumerable. It's a great multitude. The first group is standing on the earth, the 144,000. They have a task to do. They're going to be they're prepared for the tribulation. The second group is standing before God's throne. They're in heaven. The first group is sealed for protection. The second is ascended after they are persecuted and killed. There's a distinction. But it all has to do with this. God wants it to show two things. One, I'm in charge. <laughs> 
And number two, be encouraged. Okay? Be encouraged. Now, a second question might be this. Is there an actual 144,000 or is this just an indefinite number? Well, the biblical writer goes through a lot of pain to say, what? Of the tribe of Judah, verse 5, 12,000. Reuben, 12,000. And yet, commentators will look at that and say, well, no, it's just, an, you know, it's just a, a symbolic number. It's like, you know, it's just ambiguous. No, no, 12,000. Now, it is interesting how this, this uh, 12 tribes, there's some differences here. Um, like, you see Levi many times. Oh, let me say this. In the Old Testament, when you see the uh, listings of the tribes, there's like 18 different ways you can list the tribes. Sometimes they list according to age. Sometimes it's according to where they get the land. Sometimes it was according to Jacob's blessing. In other words, if you look at all the different ways that uh, the listing of the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, they're always different. There's never a consistency. Like in here, usually Levi is left out. Here, Levi is contained. Levi was, didn't have a land. They were the priestly order over the whole land. Usually you will find Dan here, but you don't find Dan. Well, Dan was known for idolatry. He was the, they were the southernmost tribe. They fell into idolatry. Maybe that's why we don't find Dan. Now, thankfully, in the millennial temple, thousand-year reign at the very end, we find Dan. God didn't forget about Dan. You know what that shows about God? He's gracious. Dan's there. Here, you don't find Ephraim. He also, that tribe also was known for idolatry. Instead of Ephraim, we find his, his father Joseph, verse 8. See, it was Ephraim and Manasseh were the, were the sons of Joseph. Usually see Ephraim and Manasseh. No, here you see the father represented for one of the tribes, and then Manasseh is the other one. You, you get some... So how, how would we... Is this an indefinite number? No. Is it incalculable? No, it's 144,000. The other group, the other group is incalculable. But I like what Chuck Swindoll says, God has his reasons. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's all we, let's just leave it at that. It's an actual 144,000, an actual 144,000 Jews. Very, very important. And they're going to be proclaiming the gospel. Now, by the way, what is the gospel? Because in the one passage it says the, the gospel of the kingdom. There's, over, there's, there's ever only one gospel. The gospel is the good news that God loved sinful man so much He sent His only Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Christ lived a perfect life, went to the cross as the perfect Lamb of God, died for sinners, not Himself, and those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ repent or turn from their sins and turn to Him as Lord and Savior would be saved. So you say, but why do they call it the, the gospel of the kingdom? Sometimes the gospel has different emphases. When you say the gospel of the kingdom, the emphasis is this. Christ's sacrifice saved people so that the kingdom would be. See, it, it, Christ had to die as the Savior to be the rightful heir of the Davidic kingdom. So when you see the word gospel, just know there's, there's ever only one gospel. How was Abraham saved? What? 
believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 12, what? Romans 4, Galatians, why? He keeps, Paul even repeats it. Let's, let's remember this. You're only ever saved one way. The gospel has always been consistent. Saved through faith. Faith in what God has done for us. But again, the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, you're going to see they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What do you mean? Well, they're preaching Christ, Savior, but he's also the Davidic king, the gospel of the kingdom. He's the one that has come. He's the only one. So again, I think we've covered that pretty good. Dan is omitted, but Dan will be there in the millennial kingdom. Ephraim is omitted, but he will be there. It's interesting, huh? All the particulars. Okay, let's look at some characteristics. We're almost out of time. The characteristics of the 144,000. And uh, by the way, you see them here and also in chapter 14, verses 1 to, 1 to 5. Let's, let's actually, let me read that because that will solve some time things. Um, look at, where is, I believe, chapter 7, we're in the middle of the tribulation. I believe chapter 14 is, is giving us the, the long view Excuse me, right to the end of the tribulation, okay? Just before they go into the millennial kingdom. Chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb. Who's a lamb? Christ. Standing on, now I notice this, standing on the Mount of Olives, or Zion, excuse me. Standing on the Mount of Zion. Standing. Uh, He's back on earth. He's returned, okay? And with him, 144,000, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven. Now then we see heaven. Well, let's just go down to verse uh, 4. Verse 3 says, uh, Who were redeemed from the earth, the 144,000. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, and they were without fault before the throne of God. In chapter 7, I believe it's the middle of the tribulation. Chapter 14 is the end, the final end. Christ is be- and and the, the, the focus there is not on Christ, it's on the 144,000. Something with them. Okay? So those are the two passages we're going to be flipping back and forth for the last 15 minutes of this message. First of all, we find that these were purchased. Because the chapter we just read in chapter 14, verse 3, it says, who were redeemed from the earth. They were purchased. The word redeemed means purchased. These are saved ones. Again, probably saved at the beginning of the tribulation, probably in direct relation to the, the rapture of the church, and now God's Spirit works in them. They understand. They receive their Messiah, their Savior, Jesus Christ. But they're redeemed. Not personal, they're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Okay? Christ's blood purchased, purchased these servants of God. Blood-bought servants. So they were purchased. And the next thing is, they were prepared. Because it says these 144 are prepared by, for God's service. Now we're in chapter 7. I know I'm going to be going back and forth. I'm in chapter 7, chapter 14. So, all right, chapter 7, verse 3 says this. Again, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. You've got to seal them. What is the sealing? What does a, a seal represent? It, re- it represents ownership. It represents protection. Authenticity. Okay? Security. 
Interesting point. They estimate right now there are about 50,000 missionaries in the world. True Bible-believing missionaries. In the tribulation, there's going to be 144,000. And they are going to be very, very effective. <coughs> the gospel will be getting out uh, better than any other... Although I, I will say they're going to still be using a John MacArthur study Bible. But... <laughs> Okay, David Jeremiah study Bible, whatever. But the sealing means of ownership, preservation, security. You know, the Antichrist, remember the, the mark of the beast? That's a different word. Actually, that was a word used of a tattoo, the mark of the beast. This is a different word. In fact, Robert Thomas in his commentary said this. It was an it was not uncommon for a soldier or a guild member to receive such a mark as a religious devotee. The mark was a sign of consecration to deity. The forehead was chosen because it was the most obvious, the most noble, the part by which a person is usually identified. It will be obvious to who, it will be obvious to who these slaves belong and to whom they serve. So there's going to be a seal now, it is interesting that word seal is the same word that we find in the chapter 6. In fact, it also is, uh, we're like in Ephesians 4, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There, I mean, we don't, you don't see a physical seal on you, but the Spirit is the down payment, is the, the sealing of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit in a Christian's life shows ownership, security, protection, right? But these will be physical. I think it's going to be a physical. I know there's been some debate. Is it a physical seal? Can you actually? No, I think you're going to actually seal it. See it. But the, the point, whether you see the seal or not, the point is this. God has done it to these 144,000 men. And it means that these are mine. They are going to be protected. They are going to be preserved. And nothing that Satan, the world... Antichrist or the false prophets tries to do to them will be a, they will not be able to destroy these 144,000. And you know whose names you know whose names down there? God's. By the way, if you were sealed and, and God says you can't hurt him. If I was Satan, I would say that's a guy I'm going after. Right? I'm going to prove God wrong. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Number three, they were protected. See, they were preserved and protected. So, the 125,000 are sealed. 144,000. Let's see. Let's see in, uh, in, in chapter uh, 14. Go over to chapter 14. Let's see if these 144,000... I know it was 125. Some of you are like, I thought it was 144. <laughs> but look at it, uh, chapter 14. Uh, verse 3, who's standing with them? 144,000. Verse 3, 144,000. He, he wants to make a point. He didn't say this. And there were standing with him, the Lamb, 143,999. The point is this. God says, That's, those are mine. They are going to be protected. At the end of the tribulation, three and a half years of complete horror, there's still 144,000 standing. 
God is true to His Word. He is faithful. He will protect. You know what else I was thinking about for us? God is protecting us. If we really are His servants and we've received Christ as our Lord and Savior, He protects us. He takes care of us. He uses us as instruments. And if we die, it's because He's no longer needing to use us. See, we, we try to arrange our own schedule. We just need to trust Him. You know, I'm using them. They're going to be protected. Now, you're going to find an innumerable multitude next week that they were martyred. You don't always end up living. But the point is, is it's under God's control, not ours. That's the whole point. So they are protected and preserved because they are God's witnesses and God always has a witness. How about this? Not only that, but they're pure. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. They are virgins. Does that mean the... Does that mean that if you're married and you're having intimacy, you're defiled? No, because it says the marriage bed is undefiled. But what they're getting at is this. They were not fornicators and adulterers and all the... You've got to remember, during the tribulation, during the tribulation, the Holy Spirit's um, uh, stopping of sin is going to be removed. It's going to be, it's going to be like a floodgate of evil. And, and you know this, that when, when you think the end is coming, many times you do things that you would not normally do. Just, ah, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And I'm assuming that in the tribulation, you're going to have all kinds of death and destruction, but you're going to also have carnage and immorality and ungodliness like you have never seen. Eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow you die. It's very clear here, though, these are separated ones. They are pure. They have kept themselves holy for God. Now, they are males, okay? But celibate servants of God, called by God during this very stressful time of the tribulation to abstain from a normal married life. They're not going to get married. Not because marriage is bad, but like 1 Corinthians 7, when you are married, there is a dual focus, right? I have to take care of my wife. I have to concern myself with the things of my wife and my kids and my grandkids. And if the Lord allows my great-grandkids, but my wife. There's a unique focus that a single person can have because it's not that marriage is bad. Marriage is wonderful. Amen, guys? How about you women? (laughs) The men are more spiritual. (laughs) Okay, no. Um, No, but the point is, is, you know, don't take this, oh, what do you mean, sex is bad and, you know, marriage is bad. No, no, marriage is bad is undefiled, uh, Hebrews 13. No, 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 they're not fornicators, they're not ungodly, they're not immoral, and God has chosen them, and sometimes when God gives you, He gives you the gift of celibacy, gives you the gift of singleness, this is a thing, and with that gift comes the focus. Let's face it, you're not going to want to have a wife and children during this time of death and carnage. So that's all it's saying. Devoting themselves to the Lord. How about this? Persistence. The second part, or verse four, chapter 14, verse 4. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. See, they follow their shepherd. They endure and persevere under the direst of circumstances. The worst circumstances that this earth has ever seen. And they are persistent. They are enduring. They are focused. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. 
So again, these are committed ones. By the way, how committed are you to Christ? Yeah, are you a believer? Have you ever received Christ? But, but let's say you are a believer. You follow him wherever he goes. Remember when he said to Peter, you know, when Peter gets in this, well, you know, I'm not like John and all this. What did he say? What are the two words? Follow me. You know, we get ourselves into all kinds of problems when we start comparing ourselves with other people, especially other Christians. Well, God, you, you gave him and you gave her and this is how they're living their life. You know what he keeps telling us? Follow me. Just follow him. Not only is that the path of blessing, but I'll tell you part of the blessing is it's a, it's a real hard thing when you start comparing yourself with other people. It just is. Follow me. That's what they do. And then there are proclaimers. See, they're, they're fearless. Look at verse 9. And after these things, I look. This is uh, chapter 7, verse 9. And after these things. So now he's, he's, he's been in the, the tribulation, chapter 6. I, mean, I, want, I want you to get the, the sequence here. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, after these things. And then he tells us about the 144,000 Jews that are saved and they're ministering. And look at verse 9. And after these things. I think this is implied. I, I can't say this categorically. But I believe that this is hugely implied in this passage. That those who are represented in verses, the innumerable multitude of verse 9 to 17, they're there in heaven. Because look at what it says. Verse 14, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're saved ones. They're in heaven. I believe they got saved. This is the implication. Because of the ministry of the 144,000. You see that? See, there's all this death and carnage in chapter 6. Hey, listen, you need an intermission. Let me show you what God is doing because all you see is death and destruction. No, there's going to be 144,000 that are sealed and they're not going to be touched because God always has his witness. But let me, tell you, let me also now show you, John says, and, and, and God, uh, John is shown, because I'm sure it, it, in John's thinking, when it says, and who can stand, John's probably saying nobody. It's all death and destruction. and no, There is no good coming out of this tribulation. And, and Jesus, no, no. I have my 144,000 and the implied, look at the innumerable multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation. Look at, no, there's going to be a great moving of my spirit on people's hearts individually and bringing them to the Savior. There's going to be a great evangelistic outpouring. Millions, apparently, are going to be saved. Because look at what they say in verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I mean, these are saved ones. And Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, verse 14, he says this. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. See, Jesus told his disciples in the hour of the discord, hey, listen, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached. We mean gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that I am the only Savior. That will be preached to all uh, people groups. And what do we see in the great multitude in verses 9 to 17? A great multitude, all people groups. What Christ said happened, he used 144,000. That's how they're getting saved. Let's face it, when you lose everything, what do you do? Lord, why? What? 
What's happening? Oh, there's going to be some that are going to be crawling under the rocks like the end of chapter 6. But there's going to be a whole lot there saying, God is true. The Christian God is true. The Jewish God is true. You know, the true Jewish God of the Old Testament. And, and they're going to be looking for answers and there's going to be the 144,000 answering the questions. So, what can we, what can we learn as we close? Just some conclusions. First of all, we need to have interludes in our life. We've got to have intermissions in our life. I, I was thinking a lot about this. You know, just like God did for us, chapter 7, you know, let's get the, the bigger picture. I mean, what a great passage for Thanksgiving. Lord, no matter what happens in our life, you're in control. But we need intermissions in our life all the time. Actually, he, he writes them right into our life, right? I mean, we need to have times when we regroup, reset our direction, Really remember what's essential. What is priority? I, I would hope that as you get into God's Word on a daily basis, that's what happens. Right? See, you need, to, you need to have interaction with the Word of God on a daily basis. Why? Because it resets us. It gives us a few moments many times, just a few moments, and sometimes longer. But it, it resets and regroups us. Because we can almost feel like the chapter 6. <laughs> you know? Oh, this world in crises and... You know, just all oh, the problems and frustrate. you got to go, come for a little bit and enjoy my presence and understand who I am. The more you understand God, what? The greater blessing. But not only that, but we need to regroup with each other. You know, uh, my mother always has her Thanksgiving uh, dinner the Saturday before Thanksgiving. So yesterday we went out to Fredonia got together with a couple of my sisters, nieces, nephews. What a wonderful time. It was great. Family reunion. You know, I was thinking about, though, what if when my mom called me about family reunion, I said, nope, not coming. Don't care about you guys. <laughs> yeah, I'd have a lot to pay for. <laughs> I think sometimes that's how, that's how we respond. We have a family. It's called the church. When you get together on Sunday, do you look at this as family reunion? This is time of getting together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. See, I always hear this argument. I didn't come to church, John. I'm sorry, almost like they apologized to me. Don't apologize to me. Apologize to God. God placed you into the universal family. He also placed you into a local body of believers called the local church. It's family reunion. That's how you got to look at this. Don't look at it, oh, i got to go because otherwise John will call me. Probably won't anyways. But the point is, no, I mean, I'm not going to track you down. It's between you and God. I mean that seriously. I mean, we try hard on shepherding, but it's family. Do you look at this as family? It's good. To, I'm telling you, I've had conflicts with my own sisters. You've probably heard a few stories. But it, it, it was, well, you always do. They're, you know, girls are kind of emotional. No. <laughs> Isn't that a crazy joke to say on a Sunday morning? No. No, no, no. I, I love my sister, and most of it was my problem. I was the older one. No, the point is, is this. We have worked through it, and it was a great time to be with my sisters and my mother. I mean, it really was. It almost brought tears to my eyes when we were praying. I hope you feel the same way. You know, don't ditch your family, i.e. the church. Okay, times of interlude, intermission. Lord's Day is a time of their Time with God is. Okay, number two, 144,000 reveal God's faithfulness to His promises. We've said that over and over again. Hey, 144,000, chapter 14, 144,000. Some of you talking about the emotions of women. Stop it. 
<laughs> God's faithfulness. Number three, we learn that even in judgment, God is merciful. That is huge. You know when the church really always explodes? Persecution. When it's easy, the church seems to kind of lollygag around, but when there's persecution, you know what happens? The Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and people getting saved, and people are getting committed to the Lord. That's what you see here. We learn that even in judgment, God is merciful. Why? 144,000 are kept, and a great multitude are saved. Number four, these Jewish witnesses will help fulfill the prophecy, again, that Jesus said in Matthew 24 that I just read. The gospel kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, and it was, and it is, and it will be. <laughs> okay. It will be fulfilled. And then finally, the fifth, interludes or intermissions refresh us with why it is worth it all. It resets us to our priorities. And I get this from verse 9. After these things I looked and behold, a great multitude. I mean, what a blessing for John as he's writing this down. He's gone through the six seals. Now he says 144,000. I'm sure in his mind he's wondering, but were they effective? And then verse 9, the angel tells, yeah, and a great multitude. I'm sure like John is. Because think about where John is. On the island of Patmos. On that rock. Exiled. He's writing this letter to seven churches, but they're all struggling. Five of the seven churches are really struggling. Sin is overwhelming them. I'm sure he is not depressed in the ungodly, but just, wow. You know what Christians usually think? We're We're the least, which we are at the moment. Beaten down, persecuted, always hunted. We're the ones, you know. But don't, don't forget, we are on the winning team. And when you get to verses 9 to 17 in the innumerable multitude that no one could count, that's right. We serve the Almighty God. And the Lamb is the one that is the one in control and we are on the winning team. And so we need these interludes and refreshment I like what Chuck Swindoll says. In the depths of despair, in the thick of tragedy, in the throes of suffering, we need interludes in in order to recharge us spiritually with the faith and fortitude to carry on. Interludes can help us endure sufferings, loss, disappointment, and death of dreams. They massage us back to a fresh new start. We re-enter the fray with new perspective centered on God's goodness and on His plan and purpose. Amen. That's what we need. So, during this holiday season, one, I hope you get refreshed. You know, sometimes when it comes to holidays, I don't know about you, but maybe sometimes we get through them and say, oh, I'm just glad that that's done. Take some time. Spend some refreshing time in the Word of God. Maybe the Psalms. And get refreshed and refocused, right? So that we are encouraged. That would be the first thing. But the other thing is this. These were witnesses. I'd encourage you to also say, you know, but Lord, give me opportunity to share the gospel with those who I come in contact with. And one of the opportunities you have real quick, I mean, just coming around the corner, is this Christmas program. You've got... Uh, invitations out there, you've got family and friends, why don't you pick some up on your way out? Hand them out at Thanksgiving. Be praying that the, the gospel would be very clear as it's presented by Bill Baker, and then follow up on the person. 
See, you be the 144,000. Be the witness that God wants you to be. Because really, when it's all said and done, isn't that what it's all about on this earth? Being a blessing to those around us, getting them to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we worship Him.